We've been studying a series called 16 Verses. 16 Verses that give us signposts to the entire meta-narrative, the story of the Gospel. And today we're going to hit two and one. And we talk about the cross and the resurrection. Jesus' cross is not some archaeological item to be found or looked at and enjoyed. Uh, there's a great show on television uh, uh, that, that this guy travels the world and, and he looks for mysteries and cool things to find and just saw one recently on the cross of Christ. Now, Constantine's mama came and, and, and found a piece of the cross and it got set up as uh, little things for people to come and touch and all kinds of weird stuff, which... Didn't, not true. But, you know, that's how things began to get off track with the gospel and the church until Luther, which we're going to be studying Luther uh, this All Saints Day, and we're going to look at the solas of the Reformation. And we're firmly and seriously Protestant, and you're going to know why after all that. But Jesus' cross isn't some archaeological item to be discovered and used as a relic. Jesus' resurrection isn't a mythical story that's conjured up to uh, help us give a little more human effort to overcome our hardships. No, it's not what that's about. Jesus' cross and His resurrection is, and I know two things with an is is bad grammar, okay? but it's good theology in this point because His cross, the cross and the resurrection go together. Right? Without the resurrection, the cross was kind of pointless. He's just a martyred good guy. So Jesus' cross and His resurrection is the climactic event in the story of the gospel that has so long been anticipated from Genesis 3 up to this point. Jesus has come. He's died. He has risen. And He's kicked the curse of sin and death in the teeth. Stomped the galactic-sized mud hole in its backside. And victoriously walked it dry. He is victorious. He is the reigning King of the universe. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. The eternal Creator of all things. He is Jesus. So the cross and the resurrection are both as central to living the Christian life as they are to entering the Christian life. And that's really going to be our, I guess you could say, thesis a little bit this morning. Is that the cross and the resurrection are central to living the Christian life as they are to entering it. Because all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, finish up with the resurrection. The subsequent writings of the apostles talk about the death of Jesus and His resurrection together. They don't separate them. The cross without the resurrection, as I've already said, is completely incomplete. So we're combining them today and not treating them separately. Although I want to say this to you, nothing we're going to do today is completely comprehensive. Because this is topical as we've been for these weeks. We're going to give it, as we used to say out in Silver Creek, a lick and a promise. So everything we observe today is a result of the cross... And the resurrection. So what do we see? It's our first question. And then what does it mean? And then how do we obey? So let's start with what do we see? Two passages for us today. And we're really going to hone in on one. John 19. John 19 verse 28 to 30. I'm going to really try. And, I, and, and uh, I'm kind of timing myself. Right? Um, because there, there's going to be 11 points of meaning and likely not going to hit all of them, okay? They're all posted on the blog for the sermon notes and you can go and look at them, look up stuff. I'm going to go as far as time will allow this morning and, uh, and we're going to hit some application points. So if we don't hit all 11, feel free to go and look. I always over-prepare because that's my nature. And I sometimes over-preach to you and like an hour later, you're like, oh God, let us go. And so I'm going to do my best to be a better steward of your time and your attention span while at the same time pounding the truth in. And so we're going to deal with that today. So what do we see? We'll start with John 19, 28 to 30. Here we go. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said... And now, in some of your Bibles, this, this is in parenthesis. To fulfill the Scripture. Right? After this... Knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
And this is a quotation from Psalm 69, 21. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is absolutely astounding. All through the Gospels, you'll notice the Gospel writers say this little phrase, to fulfill, to fulfill, to fulfill. What's the point? The point they're making to you is everything happening here in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is to fulfill everything that has been written about him up to this point in Genesis through Malachi. So they're meticulously letting you and I know that even down to sour wine being at the cross and them putting it up to His lips to drink after He said, I thirst, was to fulfill what was already written about Him. Which is the reason we've been studying what we've been studying. These 16 verses, these signposts through the Old Testament that point us to the fact that Jesus is the promised serpent killer. And so once again, just a nice little statement right here in the middle of a few verses to fulfill the Scripture. And just so many things we could say here. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. God is meticulously making sure He keeps His Word. How awesome is that? Down to making sure that Psalm 69, 21 has a fulfillment at its appointed time in history. How stinking cool is that? That's amazing. And if God is concerned with making sure... A sponge gets dipped in sour wine and lifted to the lips of the Messiah to fulfill what was written. How much more does He also care about those of us who believed in the Lord Jesus and those who will believe through the preached gospel? That's cool, huh? That's pretty good stuff. And so, Jesus says, in order to fulfill what has already been written, I thirst, right? And then verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, because it's finished, it's done, everything's been accomplished, He said, it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit (laughs) jesus makes a statement that's galactic it is finished the job's been completed everything's been done and he has achieved the mission and then we get this little passage, Romans 1, 1 to 4, which is, which is how Paul introduces these first 11 chapters in the book of Romans on God's justifying work, which we'll take a look at next week. And he introduces those first 11 chapters of a 16 chapter book with this little statement. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Again, so much so much more. We're given a lick and a promise. But all these things God has promised. Paul has been set aside as a, an apostle for the gospel that God has promised in these scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, again keeping the promise according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. Because the, this is parenthesis here, parenthesis added. Because the resurrection is the exclamation point on the work of salvation. He was declared with power to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we come to this moment in time where everything God has done in history has been pointing. And at this moment, Jesus accomplishes the mission. He dies and He is buried and He rises. And it is completely Finished. The work's been done. The promise in Genesis 3 was there there would be one who would come. And he would be the descendant of the woman. And this descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent would strike and strike a wound. But that wound would not be a grievous wound. The grievous wound would happen when that one, that son, that descendant, that one who came from Abraham, that one who came from David, that one who was promised, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would put His heel on the head of the serpent and crush Him and deal a death blow to death. And sin, it's finished. It's done. It's been accomplished. So what in the world does this mean for us? That's what we see. Jesus said it's finished. It's done. So what does that mean? What we're going to do here for the next few minutes is look at multiple passages from all over the New Testament that deal, these passages deal with the cross and its implications. And there's 11 of them and we're just scratching the surface. Alright, so what does this mean that it is finished? That He has been raised to life? 
Well, let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 to 23. Here's what this means for us. The cross is a simple and a powerful message. The cross is a simple and a powerful message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 through 23 The background here in this passage is that Paul is preaching to an audience mixed with Gentiles and Jews. And particularly for these Gentiles, particularly these Greeks, they valued wisdom and eloquence in and of itself as being the substance of anything. So as long as you spoke eloquently, that was good. You could be saying junk. Worthless things. You could speak the wall has a yellow stripe. And if you did it eloquently, oh, marvelous, marvelous. So when Paul says what he says here, hear this, this is important. He's not saying that we don't use eloquent words, nor are we to strive to speak well concerning the gospel, which people misinterpret this passage that way. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we don't use eloquence for eloquence sake lest the cross be emptied of its power, right? So, he's speaking to an audience who thinks, as long as you speak well, you can say trash and it's beautiful. So, he's saying to them, this is not how we treat Christ. Because Paul will go on with very great eloquence to speak of the gospel. So, he's not cutting off eloquence. He's just simply saying, we don't use eloquence as the end all and be all. Does that make sense? So, let's hear what he has to say here in verse 17 to 23. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this message of the cross, this message of Christ's resurrection is a simple message, but it is a powerful message. I really felt foolish writing that in because it seems like every week for 14 weeks or so, we've said this to you over and over and over again, this message is not a complicated message. The gospel message is not undiscernible by children. The gospel message is a simple message, but the simplicity of it does not rob it of its power. This message is so powerful that it takes dead people, spiritually dead people, and resurrects them to life. This message is so powerful that it can take the most hardened atheist and convince them that Jesus is God. Without your help and mine. Because it doesn't need eloquence. Eloquence is not bad. But eloquence for eloquence sake is Paul's argument here is we don't just speak eloquently to be eloquent. We speak this message of the cross and for those of us who are in it, we recognize it's powerful because we used to be here but now we're here. And it was that message that got us there. So this glorious message of Jesus, the eternal creator of all things, has been rebelled against And He, in His kind, gracious mercy, did not summarily execute all humanity. But in the fullness of time, He has come and He has taken the sin of the world on Himself. And He has died and He has been buried and He rose to kick sin and death in the teeth and victoriously distribute faith to all those who believe and give them life and resurrect them from death to life and make them sons and daughters of God. That message will take you from death to life. It doesn't need your help. doesn't need your eloquence. It's a powerful message. It's a simple message. It's a message that a child can hear and be saved. It's a message that a PhD in science can hear and be saved. And so we recognize the message of the cross is simple, but it's powerful. Another 
meaning of the cross and the resurrection for us we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21. Now remember I told you there are 11, 11 points and we might not get to all of them. So I'm going to speed through these and we may get to all 11. We may not. We'll see. But the second meaning for us of the cross and the resurrection is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14 to 21. The cross causes us to be controlled, causes us to be controlled by Jesus' love. And it's set in the context of verse 11 through 13. So therefore, let me read 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through verse 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, or I'm sorry, but... What we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Why? Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. So why? How does the love of Christ control us? Because we've concluded something. That one has died. The cross. Therefore all have died. Speaking of those who are in Christ. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him. Who for their sake died and was raised. Death. Cross, resurrection. And so from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know this passage perhaps if you've been in the faith a while and been to a vacation Bible school or some kind of thing. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross, Jesus' death and His resurrection causes us to be controlled by Jesus' love. And so that verse 14 that tells us we're controlled by His love for us. We're controlled by what He did for us in His death and His resurrection. Thus setting the stage to understand verse 11 through 13. Which Paul says, we seek now to persuade others. You're getting a little application here out of this passage, but because He has died and He has been raised and He's kicked sin and death in the teeth and He's victorious and He rules the nations and He's advancing His kingdom, we seek to persuade others. We'll say more about that when we talk about obedience. But Paul tells us here, as a result of that, we now want to persuade others because we're controlled by the love of Christ. Listen, if there's no evangelistic thrust to our lives, the love of Christ doesn't control us. Because if you've been loved by Christ in spite of yourself, you know what it's like. And you can't help but have some type of outlay of the truth of Christ's love to save sinners. Right? Let's just take a real honest look at ourselves. There's no saints in here. Right? Practically speaking, the Bible calls us saints, but that's because of Jesus, not because we carry this great sainthood around in our past. We're all squeaky clean. Never sinned. I'm good. Jesus saved me because He had to have me. Because I was a trophy for Him. Nobody in this room, that there's nobody in the world that can say that. And because we're persuaded, controlled. And Paul chose this language intentionally. We're controlled by the love of Christ. It controls us. Listen, there's no freedom you possess to manipulate the love of Christ for lost people. You don't get an option on deciding whether or not you want to persuade others. It's a command. It's a mandate, right? 
We seek to persuade. It goes on there in verse 11 through 13 is the context for this work of the cross and the resurrection. We don't commend ourselves, but Jesus. We're not commending ourselves. Lifting up Jesus. There's nothing in me that will save anybody. Sure, your testimony may be important at some point to share, but don't start with your testimony. Start with Jesus. Great place to start, right? Because we're controlled by the love of Christ. Not boasting in outward appearances. I love how so many in the Western context point to the outward manifestation of the church as a reason why they should be part of a church. There's one problem to that. What you win people with, you have to keep them with. And if you win people with outward appearances, you've got to keep them with outward appearances, which means it's a never-ending cycle of seeking to be slicker. Right? Paul tells us here that we persuade others because of the love of Christ, not commending ourselves, not commending our slickness, not commending our ministry, but Christ. Not boasting in outward appearances. Notice here, they were slandered. So being okay with being slandered in falsehood because it's not about us or our reputation. Now it's one thing if we are slandered because we're fools. You lost your reputation anyway, it kind of don't matter. But if we're slandered falsely for the sake of the gospel, we receive it because that's exactly how Jesus was treated. We don't seek the approval of people. But we're controlled by the love of Christ because, as we read here in verse 15, because He died and He was raised. So another meaning of the cross and the resurrection for us we find in Ephesians 2, 11-16. Ephesians 2, 11-16. If you're not sure about Ephesians, if you get 2 Corinthians, just flip to your right and you'll hit... Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Galatians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Georgia Electric Power Company. It's how you could way to remember it. Georgia Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians 2. You'll flip over, you'll hit Ephesians pretty quickly. Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. Another meaning of the cross and resurrection is the cross, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, kills hostility between peoples and creates one new man. The cross of Jesus kills hostility between peoples and creates one new man. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... Now remember, Paul, a Jew, has a ministry to Gentiles. And he may have been more persecuted for that fact than he was for the actual preaching of the cross. That's debatable, but it's a possibility. Because most of his persecution early on came from the Jewish nation over this issue right here. Therefore, remember that you, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. See, called them a name, right? The uncircumcised. By those who were circumcised. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now. But now. It's what it used to be. But now. In Christ Jesus. You who were once far off. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might, here it is, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the cross... Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection killed hostility between peoples and creates in Him one new man. This is the very basis. The cross is the basis for which the church, globally and locally, must look multi-ethnic. A failure to reach cross-culturally is a failure to recognize the explicit work of the gospel in context. 
a homogenous church does not put on display the victory of the cross. Because we just read here that what the cross did was create one new man. Meaning that one new man is a person whose values are kingdom, not white, not black, not Hispanic, not Asian. I'm so tired of us talking about blending values. If we have values that don't align with the kingdom of God, regardless of our race, we are wrong. What makes us unified is we have the same values. And these are the values. And if these are the values, Jesus has made it possible for us to be one people. Looking like people from all nations in one church. And a failure to reach across is a failure to recognize the effectiveness of the gospel. And if we don't reach across and we do not reach across for the sake of any reason whatsoever, we are denying the power of the cross. Because the reality is, if we believe the gospel, the cross has broken down the hostile wall of division, he says. And has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. It is a reality that unity in the church between races can be had. It's not because the cross hadn't been effective. It's because we aren't repentant. It's because we like the values of our culture better than we like the values of their culture. And we don't even know what the values of God's kingdom is. Because God forbid we actually read this and do something with it. Right? Right, The reality is the cross has killed this hostility so that we can be a multi-ethnic fellowship and share the values of God's kingdom. One new man. Not a body with a bunch of different values, but a body made up of the values of God's kingdom. So the cross does that for us. Another thing the cross does for us here, we see in Colossians 1.20. Georgia Electric Power Company. So Philippians, Colossians, Colossians 1.20. We see that the cross makes peace so that we can have a ministry of reconciliation. The cross makes peace, that is peace between us and God, so that we now, we, us, you, me, all of us together, have a ministry and it's the ministry of reconciliation. Um, just for the sake of reading a complete sentence, let's go back up to verse 19. For in Him, who's Him? Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things. Now remember I told you to lick in a promise. That is rich enough by itself. But not the point of our thing this morning. Whether on earth or in heaven... So because of, we see here, the cross, all things, He has made possible for them to be reconciled in Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So Jesus' cross makes peace between God and man and God and created order so that we can now possess this amazing ministry of reconciliation. And we just read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Right? That we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. People say, I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. You have a ministry. Your ministry is to reconcile people and all things back to God through Jesus Christ. This is what we call domain engagement, right? We talk about one of our tactics that's part of our strategy to achieving division is domain engagement. God has wired each of you in a unique way to fill a place in in the world, a structure in society. And you have a unique gift set. And if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and He's gifted you with gifts for the body so that you can be there and function in the ministry He's given you to reconcile people and things back to Christ. Now that's a whole talk in and of itself. And if you will come to KDSC training, which we'll be having in January this year, you'll hear a little more detail on how that works out. So you're all invited. You just got to let me know you're coming so we can feed you appropriately. You can get a meal out of it. Right? How awesome is that? And we'll be doing it at Restoration Rome, our place down in South Rome. So you see domain engagement, you feel it, and you're learning about it. But the reality is you and I both, all of us, have been given a ministry. And that is the ministry of reconciliation because of the cross of Christ. 
The cross has killed the hostility of the curse, making peace possible. Therefore, Jesus said things like this in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they're called sons of God. You know what? Peacemaking is what children belonging to Jesus do. They make peace. Between people, between institutions, inside domains, you have a ministry. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. It'll take you a lifetime to figure out how to bring peace in your domain. There are no easy answers to doing that because the curse is still being defeated, but it's still present. And so therefore, just attempt it. Just get involved and you will recognize five million things that need to be solved to make things efficient and right. But that's usually when Christians start bugging out. That's hard. I have to work more than 40 hours a week. You know, I'm, I'm 9 to 5 only because I need a retreat. One month, one one week in a month. If I don't get one retreat, one week in a month, I'm going to die. We're soft, man. We quit too easy. We don't get involved. We don't fight. We're happy to work our 35 to 40 hours a week and then go watch our favorite TV show and veg out and die in front of the television. I love TV. Don't hear me. TV is awesome. Sports, the best football season is nearly here, and Jesus will be glorified. In that season, I'm for it. But it can't be my life. I can't... You understand what I'm saying? Like, I can't work my 35, 40 hours and be content to go home and think, well, the kingdom's coming in spite of me. No, with you. We're called to engage and lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. Which means sometimes you've got to work 60, 70 hours a week. And some of it you're not going to get paid for. Let's just be honest. The reality, the economics, the situation is sometimes we just need to work because work is holy. Whether we get paid for it or not. Because what's at stake is the advance of the kingdom. And how great will it be to stand for Jesus? I didn't really go do that because I didn't get paid. Really? I'm not sure that's how it rolls because Jesus was talking about rich people getting into the kingdom and Matthew chapter 12 and all that fun stuff and and... And they're like, well, who can be saved? And Jesus is like, well, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. And Peter's like, hey, Lord, we've left everything for the sake of the kingdom. What are we going to get? And Jesus says to Peter, there will be nobody who's left houses, family, money, whatever, who won't receive a hundred times more in the kingdom. You see, the reality is for us to bug out on doing kingdom work because there's no gain in it now is to disbelieve Jesus' words that in the kingdom He'll pay us back a hundredfold. <laughs> don't believe Him. I, I, want, I don't want to go to hell, but I sure don't want to trust Him for now. I'll make it my own way, Jesus. That's not how it works. The reality is to take Jesus at His word is to just do the kingdom and regardless of what it costs me now, I trust it. It's going to be worth it. That's to take Him at His word. That's faith working itself out. Does that make sense? That's faith working itself out. So the reality is the cross makes peace and gives us a ministry. You all have a ministry. It's a ministry of reconciliation. So get busy preaching Jesus and solving problems in your domain. And if you die never see seeing the fruit, trust that Jesus used you as an instrument to lay down on the wire so somebody else can step over your dead body to the solution one day and be okay with that. Colossians 2.14 Another meaning of the cross for us is the cross pays our debt thereby disarming the spiritual powers that had power over us. The cross pays our debt, thereby disarming the spiritual powers that had power over us. Colossians 2.14 Let's just read verse 13 too. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's good news. So, because of the, the cross, right? We were, we were dead, and because of the cross, God has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
And therefore he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross pays our debt. So the debt that we incurred because of Adam, right? Romans 5 tells us we're born guilty of the sin of Adam. You don't have to sin for the first time to be guilty of sin. The moment you're conceived, you're sinful. David said that in Psalm 51. Surely in sin I was conceived. So the reality is you're born with a debt. We only add to it. And through the cross, Jesus cancels the debt. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And He has disarmed the spiritual powers that had power over us. It says here, He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. There is no spiritual authority that stands over you that has power over you. Jesus, in His death, burial, and resurrection... Kicked the curse in the teeth. Remember we said that early? Stomped the mud hole in its backside and victoriously walked it dry. Get a little rednecky on you, right? That's what Jesus did. And in so doing, we learn here that He also disarmed these rulers and authorities, these spiritual powers that seek to hold sway over us. Listen, we can't use the excuse of spiritual warfare as the reason we don't have victory and wins over spiritual issues. The reality is the victory has already been given to us. There's the appropriation of it on our part by obeying Jesus. The chief way we have victory over spiritual warfare and in spiritual warfare is to simply appropriate Jesus' teaching on the issue. Jesus taught us all through the Gospels. Because of what He's done, we have the authority to command obedience on their part to the advancement of the kingdom. Now, now that's really weird for Southern Baptists because we don't talk about spiritual warfare a lot. Now, if you come to our church, you'll hear it quite a bit. But the reality for some people when we talk this language, it's really weird because we're kind of naturalists at heart and we don't really want to admit that we, we're skeptical about the spiritual world. I'm not sure it's really there. Oh, it's there. And the harsh reality is that we find it easier to play the victim card than we do to take up obedience to Jesus and find the victory in obeying Christ. But what we learn here is the cross has disarmed these spiritual powers and they've been triumphed by Christ. And because Jesus has given us His authority, we have victory over those things. So never ever allow yourself to use spiritual warfare as a reason you can't have the win. Appropriate Jesus' Word, obey Him, And you will see the conquering of spiritual power. It's a foregone conclusion. It's reality. Again, I told you we're doing a lick and a promise. I'm going to hit one more because we're going to run out of time real quickly. We're going to skip over to Galatians, which is all the way backward. Move backward. Georgia Electric Power Company. Galatians 6.14. I've really debated on whether or not just to hang out in the book of Galatians because Galatians is all about the triumph of the cross over the legal demands of the law. Not trumping them in the sense of being opposed to them, but fulfilling them and the results being given to us to live in the glorious freedom of obedience to Jesus. But as a result of all that teaching Paul does in the book of Galatians, he comes to the end of the book And he says this in Galatians 6.14. This is a great way to tie this up and move to a couple points of application. Starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing of the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see what was happening. There were some people teaching. You got to add circumcision to faith in order for it to work. So some of you are going, okay, Jesus is a pretty good idea, but maybe we should add circumcision to that. And Paul's going, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's faith alone and Christ alone. That's it. And so he spent the book talking about the triumph of the cross over those things. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except... (laughs) 
in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. (laughs) So, the external peace is irrelevant. What matters is the cross that transforms me and makes me a new creature. So that in my uniting to Christ, I follow Him, I obey Him, I do what He says. And therefore, Paul says, the ground of my boasting is nothing but the cross. It's passages like this that would lead the church to do crazy things. And some of y'all do it too. You maybe wear one around your neck. And you think, you really think about that for a minute. It's kind of strange. Some of you may have it inked on your body somewhere. You have a Roman torture device around your neck or inked on your body. It's kind of like having a gas chamber tattooed on your back or like an electric chair. Maybe you're like, that's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Having a cross around your neck is weird because it's a Roman execution device. But Paul says we boast in it. Why have we as Christians now taken the cross and turned it into an icon? Because we boast in its effect. It has been the means by which I've been reconciled to God. My sin's been forgiven. And I've been given a ministry of reconciliation. And now, it's my ground of boasting. So I don't brag in me. I don't brag in my accomplishments. I brag in Christ and His cross. In other words, have you noticed what we do? Particularly, if you get around a bunch of guys that don't know each other and they start introducing themselves, it's about five minutes before we start one-upping each other passively-aggressively. What do you do? And then we start finding ways what we do is better than what they do. And if you don't say it out loud, you're thinking it on the inside. And if you don't, you're lying. You're a liar if you say, I don't do that. Right? You know what we do. Ladies probably don't do that because you are better. Men are... You do. Thank you for admitting that. That's good. I know some of you, some people do it on the Facebook, man. They get in the mommy wars and I'm like, oh God, somebody needs to get saved. Oh my Lord, my parenting's better than your parenting. Oh my God, I'm a bad mama. And I'm like, oh no, help us, Jesus. Have you ever wondered how kids got to be here? Like, if, if, if the only way to raise kids is the way people have figured it out now that's the better way, like, how did they do like 2,000 years ago? How did the, how did the human race survive? God forbid. It's all good. Just don't kill them. They're going to make it, right? Don't kill them. So yeah, we do that, don't we? We start one up in each other. We find reasons to boast passively, aggressively. And Paul says, the cross kills that because the cross is what I boast in. The, the cross is my ground of boasting. It's my bragging. No, I am nothing. Jesus is everything. His death is why I stand. That's our boast. And Paul said, because of the cross... The external isn't anything. What matters is a new creation. And by His grace, I am. And so therefore, I lift Christ up in my life. So that's the cross. So what do we do with that? What's a cross-centric life look like? You hear us talk about, take it my cross, take it my cross, take it my cross. And often what people mean by that is I've got some kind of burden I've got to carry in life. That's not what taking up one's cross means. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, that doesn't mean carry some hardship in life. It's not what that means at all. We've pillaged that language and made it mean something Jesus did not intend it to be. When Jesus said, take your cross and follow me, what Jesus was saying was, because of the text, because everything He inspired to be written prior to it and what He was about to do and accomplish, was letting us know that we are to take up this message of the glorious cross of Christ and it is to be our banner. It is to be how we live. It's not only what we say, it's what informs our decision making. That's what it means to take up the cross. It's not to bear some hard thing in life. It is to be your message and the value system off which we live life. So what does a cross-centric life look like? Just a few things. It's a John the Baptist kind of life. Number one, John the Baptist kind of life. John 3.30, John said, He must increase, I must decrease. That's what I mean by John the Baptist kind of life. It is the decreasing of me, the increasing of Christ. It's this constant process by which I become less, Jesus becomes more. The day you come to faith in Christ, that process of you dying starts and Jesus getting bigger in you begins. And so a cross-centric life is humble, Jesus exalting, Jesus obeying, Jesus credit giving, 
us decreasing, Jesus increasing. I'm going to just come into mind. It's not my notes, but I'm going to say it now. Be careful with social media. Social media, and I'm, I'm on it. You guys, some follow me. I tweet like there's no tomorrow. I'm a Twitter boy. Dude, I'm there. But it is very easy for social media to become a way by which we increase and Jesus decreases. It can be very narcissistic if you're not careful. Be careful. Be careful. What is a cross-centric life? I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying use it well. Use it well. Use it well. But it's a John the Baptist kind of life. It's me decreasing, Jesus increasing. Number two, it's a simple life. Yet it's a profound life that is informed by a simple and profound message. I find it very interesting that life for Christians in the West is increasingly complex and we're increasingly stressed out. And if you're smart, you're learning from pagans on how not to be that way. I have found the best leadership books, the best books on resting come from non-Christians. And it's a shame. I read broadly. I read everything. I read everything. I read it all. I assimilate it based on this. But I've found the better books on Sabbathing, and they don't call it Sabbath. The rest of the world's figured out how to simplify, and we just keep adding, because the reality is we think the external is better than a new creation. And we want to get more and more and more and more and more, and then we have no time left for the kingdom. It's because we don't share the value system of the kingdom. A cross life is a simple life. I found the less I have, the happier I am. The more I have, the harder it is. I'm not saying go sell everything and go live upon a mountain in a burlap cloth. But I'm saying be careful to recognize that a cross life is a simple life. And it's the challenge of most of us in here on how to manage that. Particularly if you've got kids, right? It's only multiplied. It's only worse. Kids are awesome until you have them. To be honest. Love you kids. You're awesome. But until you got to... We just... Me and William talking. When you start getting 16 and that insurance get added, and you're like, oh, Jesus. And then the next one's coming next. I'm thinking that times two. Oh, Lord. Then times three. It's like, I need another job. And it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It is hard. And I recognize that it is difficult to live simply in a complex culture that demands more of you that the kingdom doesn't demand. I get the stress. I'm in the middle of it with you. But it's a fight worth fighting for. And we've got to figure that out as followers of Jesus. A simple but profound life. Third, when you figure it out, let me know. I'll write the book so you can have half the profits. How about that? I'll write it. Your idea. Good. Write it. Good. It's a deal. I'm offering you a deal. Half and half. Right? Number three. We can and should make an effort to cross cultures. Guys, we've got to figure out how to cross cultures. We need to be better. And everything we do, we got to cross cultures. What does it look like to be the kingdom of God? Not just white, Hispanic, black, or Asian. What does it look like to cross cultures and truly, truly, you've heard me say that over and over again as we've studied through the Scriptures, it has to be a part of our culture because the cross makes it possible. We all have this God-given ministry, so I say to you, Three Rivers Church, continue to execute the ministry of reconciliation. Three Rivers Church evangelize like there's no tomorrow. Make disciples. It's part of the call. We've been united to Christ. And so our lives need to look increasingly like Jesus and committed to His kingdom. And then finally, we're a worshiping body. In my Old Testament readings this year, every year I come through the same passage at the same time every year. And I'm just about to finish up Chronicles, Second Chronicles again. And I'm struck... At David's application of the Levites to worship in the temple. Of course, they didn't have the temple at David's time. They still had the tabernacle set up and Solomon was going to build the temple. But David appointed the Levites to sing 24 hours a day. That in front of the ark, there was always singing. And there were one of the guy's names, one of the Levites appointed, his name is He-Man. Anybody raised during the He-Man time? Skeletor? Who had, who had, Skeletor was awesome. And then there was He-Man. And so I can't read He-Man. I think it's, it's pronounced He-Man, but He-Man, I'm thinking, 
Yeah, He-Man. Like I see Skeletor and there's a battle going on. But there's He-Man, Jeduthun, and Asaph. And they were singing before the Lord always. And they were playing cymbals loudly and celebrating before the Lord. And there was always music in the tabernacle. Looking forward to those Revelation 4 and 5 passages where the king of the universe is constantly forever at some point in time physically being bowed down to and sung to. And at this point in salvation history, we get to participate once a week. We get to join with the heavenly host in singing. So as people who've been purchased by the cross, we need to be a singing and worshiping people. Which is one of the reasons we sing and we worship. (laughs) And so we always come to this time and our invitation to you is respond to God's word and song. Dare not stand there stoically thinking somehow that it's okay. Revelation 4 and 5 is filled with grown men and beasts and all kinds of crazy things bowing down, physically prostrate. At some point in time, I know we're a heady, more heady kind of people. Our, it's kind of our, I guess, our education background. We're, we're more, I don't know, I don't know what our deal is, but we don't, we're not good in Pentecostal enough. I'm going to be better better Pentecostals. And what I mean by that is somewhere the truth has to connect to the emotion in some of us at some point and some time. That's a, that's a biblical fact, that, that the emotion has to connect to reality. And that has to get played out somehow. Remember David, the warrior, came dancing naked up the street. Keep your clothes on. I'm not dealing with that. Point is, David even said, I will get more undignified than this when Saul's daughter, his wife, Hated him for it. He said, you've seen nothing undignified yet. There's more to come. Why? Because the truth connected to the heart and David danced it out. So I just want to invite you to make much of Jesus, whatever that looks like. Does that make sense? Because the cross makes that possible, makes it count. Be a worshiping people. Make much of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would bring great glory to your name. I pray that you would um, be exalted in our words, be exalted in our worship, be exalted in our song. Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would take your word and make application of it right now in the hearts of your people. There's some here who, who have not yet believed by faith. I pray that that message would penetrate deeply, that the cross of Christ would wreck that death and bring to life. Would you do that and make that effective, Holy Spirit? We pray that you would take your people and cause them to delight in you more and you'd connect truth and, and emotion somewhere down in our souls. For people like me, where that was cut off through hardship as a kid, and it's hard to make those connections because I've learned to deaden and be cold to those things. I pray you could continue to connect pieces I need that desperately even now that you'd connect truth to my soul in in amazing ways my head and my heart would connect I need that so I'm asking that for me for all of us would you make those connections where they need to be made we trust you to do that that you're making us more like Jesus and you'll pull that off in time but let us taste it a little bit this morning be glorified in us now we pray